Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario a proud independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally, I like the gourmet domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Creative Control with Bish Khan. On this episode, Steve Albini returns to the program to talk about baseball and poker at great length. Also, his band Shellac have a new album coming out. It's called Dude Incredible. It's not out till the middle of September. But based on our schedules, this seemed to be one of the only times Steve and I could chat. And normally, as some of you would know, I would I would engage fully with the most recent work of my guests before entertaining any kind of conversation with them about it. But because of this, this circumstance, where I haven't heard a single note from this new album, I thought I would talk to Steve about the album in, in kind of a unique way. I asked him to encapsulate each of the songs in one word and then to briefly elaborate upon that single word, and he did it. So if you're really looking forward to hearing Dude Incredible, it's been quite a number of years since Shellac released an album. We're all looking forward to hearing this new one. If you're looking forward to that, I think you will enjoy this conversation. However, if you want to hold off until you hear the album before, you know, having any opinions foisted upon you by the people in the band or people like me, you might want to stop listening when we get to the part about Dude Incredible. Because it's it's quite revealing. I'm just going to put this out as a as a public service announcement slash disclaimer. I don't want to ruin the Shellac album for anyone. 
But at the same time, I found it very insightful and revealing, and uh, and I, I hope you do too. So that's the that's the show in a nutshell. I'm a huge Shellac fan. I've seen them many times. I have all their albums. I think I'm missing a single. Um, otherwise, huge fan. Nice to chat with Steve about this and, and other stuff. So here it is, myself and Steve Albini. The Eden Mills Writers Festival is gearing up for its 2014 program, which runs September 11th to 15th, both in the city of Guelph and just 10 minutes east in the beautiful village of Eden Mills. Confirmed authors and musicians include Eleanor Catton, Lynn Cody, David Adam Richards, Miriam Taves, Anne Michaels, Heather O'Neill, Terry Fallis, Scott Merritt, Sandro Perry, Sean Michaels, Carl Wilson, and many more. There's also the 100 Story Wood Workshop, which unites Canadian authors and high school students for a day of writing on Monday, September 15th. For more information and to purchase tickets or sign up for workshops, please visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Albini is a world-renowned recording engineer and the owner and one operator of the Stellar Electrical Audio Recording Facility in Chicago, Illinois. He's also one of three singers and one of one electric guitarist in Shellac, one of the most significant and influential underground rock bands of the past 25 years. On September 16th, Touch and Go Records will release Dude Incredible, the fifth official album by Shellac. Here now to discuss some of these things is Steve Albini. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing terrific. It's nice to speak with you again. How is Chicago? Uh, very moderate temperatures. I'm, I'm, this, we've had an, uh, an atypically cool July, which I've enjoyed tremendously because I can exert myself without soaking myself with sweat. I, th- I feel like I just read that Chicago experienced the polar vortex in July. We are having, a, yeah, we're having a rerun uh, we're having a revival. You know how hip it is during Pitchfork to have revivals. And we're, we're having a revival of the polar vortex, and it's brought uh, some of your charming Canadian uh, coolness down here. Yeah. God, well, when I say coolness like that, it sounds bad, but uh, that's what I mean. No, it's cooler. No, cool. It's cool to be cool. I think coolness is actually considered a, a viable thing. It's good to be cool, but yeah, it's. Yeah, it's been a weird summer. People are complaining about it here in Canada because we had a really, really hard winter. Well, I mean, it's not—it's no longer winter, you know. 
That's true. I suppose you, you guys probably don't have it. The typical Chicago summers are extraordinarily wet and really hot. Like mm-hmm. we've had heat waves here that kill hundreds of people. That's oh. how bad it can be in the summer. So the fact that we're in the shank of the summer and, you know, there haven't been any days above 100 and the humidity is totally tolerable, I, I think that's a blessing. I realize that it's sort of implies that we're doomed as a civilization and that we've, you know, crossed some tipping point where, yeah. you know, migratory wild like wildlife and waterfowl are all going to die, yada, yada, whatever. It's really nice outside right now. <laughs> all right. Well, that's a good perspective to have, I suppose. Now, you just uh, had a visit from High Times Magazine. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty unusual. What? What? The, the, this is a magazine. I'm just looking at their website right now because I've got the internet up here in Canada. And the, one of the headlines: Snoop Dogg smoked marijuana inside the White House. All of their headlines, in fact, seem to be about marijuana. That's what they like. What well, were, the, I, the magazine is called High Times. How, like, what? What was your first clue? Yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> it's been around. It's been 40 years. It's 40 years old. High Times. No magazine. kidding. Yeah. So yeah. What, why did they stop by Electrical Audio? Uh, I don't know why it, why it was on their mind, but they emailed me and said, would you be willing to do an interview with High Times? And I, and I said, you had me at High Times. You know? <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, that was a, about the most subversive thing that you could have in your possession. It was one of the few banned periodicals that wasn't pornographic at my high school. Hmm. And are you someone who partakes in the things that are celebrated in High Times magazine? Well, I haven't smoked weed in a very, very long time. But uh, when I was a teenager, I do. Th- I think smoking weed helped to form my personality. Yeah, it was a, a you know bonding thing with my friends, and uh, you know it was a way for me to distinguish myself in my own mind, at least, from the sort of stark normalcy of what was around me. You know, mm. I th- I think altering your consciousness once in a while is a good idea, at least when you're young enough to recover from it easily. Um, so that you get an idea what happens to your, you know, so it gives you an idea of, about how mutable your thoughts are and how your thought processes are not necessarily to be trusted 100% of the time and that sort of thing. I feel like it's a good character building and conditioning thing uh, to have been high at various times in your life. Not necessarily to get high, get high all the time and not necessarily to work high or whatever, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's the sort of thing that everybody should go through. It's like... I feel like everybody should have at least some formal, like, religious orthodoxy thrust on them at some point. So if for no other reason, so that they'll get the jokes, you know, like when somebody tells you, uh, if somebody tells you jokes that involve tropes from the different traditions, it would be, you know, it's good to be familiar with at least some of them. Right. Um, And I feel like, you know, like, having a public education is the sort of thing that everybody should experience, you know, so that everybody has a sort of a a common base of understanding. And I feel like just, you know, everybody should play Little League. Everybody should have a lemonade stand. Everybody should, you know, have to suffer the indignities of a school mixer, things like that. Like, I feel like all these things are, all these things help inform, help you learn about yourself in a way that, that makes it, easier for you to understand the rest of the world. And I feel like, you know, I feel like getting high was a pretty important part of my adolescence. Not a particularly important part of my adulthood, I'll I'll admit. I basically stopped drinking and taking drugs when I was in my 20s, early 20s. Mm. I just realized I didn't like it, 
and so but I had processed the experience and I'm glad that I had those experiences. But are you so are you now someone who does those things in moderation or are you did you kind of go as they say straight edge? I mean, I, I never thought of it in terms of an ideology like uh, you know, like a professed straight edge ideology. I never thought of it in those terms, but yeah. I haven't bothered drinking or smoking weed or you know, taking pills or anything since right after I got to college. Yeah, so I would say like 1980, 81, I yeah. gave up. And in all honesty, it, it didn't feel like I was abandoning something. It didn't feel like I was giving up a pleasurable thing. It felt like it was a relief not to have to drink. And it was a relief not to have to get fucked up ever because then, you know, uh, I could drive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, I, 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 pre- I appreciate what you're saying about how those things, like actually experiencing those things kind of, you know, opening your mind to whatever experiences out there is, is integral. I kind of had the opposite, and maybe I've suffered for this. Like, I saw people getting drunk and high and then just decided I right away at a young age that I didn't... And maybe it was stemmed from some fear as well, because it seemed mm. kind of crazy. But I just never... Sure. Did, I've never done it and uh, yeah. never had an urge to do it. But get the jokes, you know. And in particularly being in music culture, you're kind of immersed in people who do do that stuff. Right, and I can I think you can pick some of it up by osmosis, but I yeah I just feel like it's I from for me anyway it was important for me to know what it was like to to trip balls you know <laughs> right. and I'm so I'm very glad I did I it's not something that I need to do regularly I can imagine that there would be I can imagine doing it again I can imagine like environments where it would be good but I think also because I've processed those experiences I don't need to actually like undergo the treatment in order to get something out of it in a different environment, you know? Yeah. Like I can I can be someplace and think, man, I would I would love this if I was tripping right now. That sort of thing, you know? <laughs> and that's enough for me to know that I would love it if I was tripping right now. Yeah, you had the sensation and you can yeah, you can see how it would be applicable to any yeah. situation, right? Okay, so that's interesting cuz I just assume that high times would want to speak to people who are, you know, still prominent advocates of the things they're advocates for, but you know, you're not, in a sense, so they just talk to you because you're an interesting guy or you have a record coming out? Yeah, you'll have to ask them. I really don't know. I don't, <laughs> don't really know where it came from. Uh, I mean, the guy had me demonstrate a, a facility with rolling fatties. Like, I, that was like a, he was, you know, there was a photo session where I twisted up a bunch of hog legs and that, that was part <laughs> of the thing. And I guess it was, I, I, I don't know if that was like a, you know, I don't know if that was like a, like a shibboleth, like I had to be able to do that in order to, get, you know, like they had, they had, I had to be able to roll credible joints in order to, in order to get into the magazine for real. I don't know. I honestly don't know why, what, what the thing was. But. It sounds like it's been 30, 30 years since you'd done anything like that. Were you, were you proficient? Could you do it? Well, I, I smoked tobacco for a, a long time oh, and right. I rolled, I hand rolled cigarettes, you know, daily for probably better than 10 years. So, uh, like that, that core skill is probably still there. Okay. That's good. Well, I'm glad. I can't wait to read it or watch it. Was it a video? I don't know. What, what, what? I think it was all just, it was all being transcribed in some fashion. It's going to be printed. The photographer, Mr. King, who's uh, a local photographer guy who's done a lot of stuff for, in a lot of the PRF stuff and other bands in, in town, uh, he he took it as an excuse to to come do the photographs. He took it as an excuse to buy a smoke machine. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so that's awesome. So, yeah, I was pleased that very, you know, if, if for no other reason that he now has a, has a smoke machine <laughs> that he felt compelled to buy for, for our benefit. I thought, I thought that was pretty great. So did he smoke out electrical audio? Is it full of that synthetic fake smoke? I mean, just long enough to take pictures. Oh, okay, that's that's yeah. pretty awesome. Now, the other one of the other exciting things that I I know that you had the great joy of experiencing was you. Not only did you attend a baseball game recently, but you got a, kind of got the royal treatment, right? Uh, yeah, a friend of mine, Kevin Goldstein, is the director of scouting, director of professional scouting for the Houston Astros. He was a um, baseball writer and uh, podcast guy. He did the. Um, uh, baseball prospectus mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, podcast, and uh, his familiarity with prospects and his um, facility with all the statistical evaluation and such uh, made him a natural choice for a professional for a, a major league baseball operation. And he signed on with the Astros, and they took to completely rebuilding their farm system and their scouting operation and they're now doing terrific things like everybody in baseball admires the the changes that have been made in the Houston Astros and it's largely a result of I mean it's hard to know whether it Kevin Goldstein getting hired is a symptom or a cause but uh whatever it is they're doing it the right way now hmm they're not they're kind of what are they in second last in the They're not a terrific team yet but they 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 are getting better they have young players in their organization that uh they're working with they haven't like rushed anybody up they're taking their time building a team that you could follow for years and appreciate all along the way I think if you were uh, if you I can't imagine how horrible it must be to live in Houston but if you did live in Houston, <laughs> watching the development of the Astros over the next five, ten years is going to be pretty great. A pretty great plus for living in Houston. And 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 you got to go to like a batting practice thing and, and... uh went to just went to a game, uh, Astros White Sox game, and uh, can't complain about the results. White Sox won. <laughs> uh, the experience was terrific. We got to you know hang out with the players. Didn't didn't really interact with them that much, but. Some of the other Astros staff we got to talk to. Um, Steve Sparks is yeah. uh, uh, work is it within the Astros organization. We hung out with him for a while, talked to him about knuckleballers, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's such a tight knit fraternity. Like he knew everybody in baseball at all levels of organization that throws a knuckleball. It was pretty cool. <laughs> wow. So and you know, I mean, you you I know you're a big baseball fan. That's this is a. Is this a one in a million experience? Have you had anything similar? It's the the only time I've ever been on a major league baseball field in the U.S. Like uh, it's the only time I've ever been on a field, and it's the only time I've ever been in that kind of proximity to guys like hitting dingers at batting practice, and that was terrific. Nice. Now, are you generally a like? I there's a you know some people are American League, some people are National League. Are you a Sox guy? Are you a Cubs guy? Where do you uh, fall? I don't. I don't. I don't pay very much attention to the Cubs. I, I, I think they're a bit of an embarrassment. They're, you know, they've made some steps to try to improve things, but um, relative to payroll, they perform worse than literally any other team in baseball. Hmm. Um, there was a pretty interesting thing on 538. I don't know if you follow 538 at all. It's a, it's a politics and sports statistical uh, blog okay. uh, website. Um, Nate Silver is the guy behind it. Oh, he's yeah. A, yeah, the, the stats guy. 
Right. Uh, he started out in the baseball world, and so he still has an affinity for sports stat- statistics. And uh, there was a pretty interesting breakdown of the performance of major league franchises um, with respect to their payroll, uh, demonstrating that you know the Oakland Af- Athletics are several standard deviations above the mean uh, in terms of performance relative to payroll, hmm. and that's all boils down to you know decisions made by their general manager Billy Bean. Uh, this is the money ball situation. Yeah, basically yeah. he's he is the 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 article is better we'll put this better than I will. Uh mm. but basically rel- relative value to the Oakland Athletics, Billy Bean is more valuable than Babe Ruth was to the Yankees. <laughs> that was the argument that he was making in the in the statistical abstract. Wow. Um so that's neither here nor there, but in that article, there was a breakdown of performance by teams um, in terms of wins relative to payroll, and the, the Chicago Cubs dead last. Mm, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it, it would be a really hard time to be a Cubs fan now, uh, while a lot of people, you know, while they're still burdened with quite a bit of salary and the team is not getting better, and they're having to trade pieces like they just got rid of Jeff Smarja mm-hmm. and you know he was one of the few bright lights and a very dim background um, of, of the Cubs I, so I, I tend not to pay any attention to the Cubs I quite like the White Sox as a team I like going to see games there um, you know the food at that ballpark is an order of magnitude better than at Wrigley and uh, Wrigley is a great place to see a ball game but you have to watch the Cubs play so it can be <laughs> you know it's a it's kind of a a mixed blessing. I we, I just had a conversation with someone uh, recently. Uh, he plays in a band, but he's a huge baseball guy. And he, I, we were just debating. Like I don't know if you've been to a Toronto Blue Jays game or a game in one of these big. I guess the White Sox stadium's like a kind of a newer it, stadium, right? Yeah, it's a contemporary stadium, but it's still like it's still quite open. Sight lines are very good. Well, it's not only that, but the atmosphere I find at uh, in Toronto we have the Rogers Center. Aka the Sky Dome, and I, it's just blaring music and jumbotron advertising, and I can't right, ha- right, I can't right. handle it. And people also don't seem that, and I don't want to generalize about the entire city of Toronto, but I went to Wrigley, and it was so wonderful. It was such a nice yeah. experience. It's a, it's a very modest scale ballpark. You're very close to the action. You can you know hear the natural sounds of the game. Uh, like there's very little very little advertising inside the stadium. I think yeah. It's, as a place to see a ball game, it's terrific, you yeah, know. Yeah, but the Cubs. Yeah, but the, then the, <laughs> then the Cubs. Yeah. Are you familiar with the uh, ESPN Thirty for Thirty series? Yeah. Have you seen Catching Hell, the the about the Steve Bartman incident at the Cubs game? I have not. Although it, that the melee around the Bartman incident was inescapable in Chicago, as you can imagine. Yeah, I, and I because I consider you an emissary of the city, and I respect your opinion, I'm curious, <laughs> what, what is your take on, on that situation, how it played out, and, and, you know... Well, it's obviously a dude was scapegoated for a, a terrible team blowing it, like always, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I There's... Yeah, it's, it's dubious whether... Uh, Moises Alou was going to catch the ball in the first place. Uh, he, you know, Bartman was obviously like overcome with excitement in a very exciting moment, and he rashly and stupidly interfered. Big deal. Mm-hmm. It happens a hundred times a year. 
it just happened to be a thing that Cubs fans could blame their failure, their team's failure on, you know. And, you know, the Cubs still had to blow that game in another one. It's not, it's not like that's what did it, you know. Yeah, no, that's true. But the, one, of the, one of the principal aspects of this documentary is about curses. Baseball is really big. I mean, I think all sports have superstitions and things like that. But this whole idea of a curse, you know, they talk about the yeah. Yankees curse, a very si- similar situation, or rather the uh, Red Sox curse. Yeah, the curse of the Bambino. Right. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you buy into any of that? Is it all just... Of course not. No, no one does. That's <laughs> just, I mean, that's just nonsense. It's just nonsense for, ru- for the rubes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a, it's a terrible incident. I, I just and you know I just was so immersed in that story recently that I, I wanted your take on it because I and I, I just didn't know some people really are like the National League is better than the American League, but you don't you don't have that. Well, I mean, yeah, I do think that National League baseball is a, a you know historically a more pure game just because you have to, the pitchers have to stand in the batter's box and get thrown at like the like yeah. everybody else. Yeah. So I, I mean, I I prefer that kind of baseball just on a structural level. But obviously, there are you know better teams. There more money, you know more wins. Uh, it, it, like if you if you play American League teams against National League teams, there aren't you know there are, are obviously going to be a few more opportunities for better hitters to have longer careers in the American League. There's going to be a few more opportunities for pitchers to go deeper in games. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's managing is not as subtle in. American League cities because the guy that the manager doesn't have to make as many on the spot decisions late in the game with regarding whether he should let a pitcher go up to bat or not like there are subtleties about that one rule that complicate all of baseball so I I yeah I think the designated hitter rule is kind of a weird yeah thing but it has allowed some people to like Edgar Martinez wouldn't have had as much of a career and he's a terrific hitter you know yeah, yeah. so we're all you know it's great that we all got to see Edgar Martinez in the bigs for another 10 years or whatever right know? baseball as i mentioned earlier and i obviously it's becoming clear as you're speaking baseball means a lot to you when did this sport grab your attention in the mid 70s i was my family moved to uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, I saw, I got to see a couple of really interesting World Series. It was Reds Orioles was one, and I think Pirates Orioles was the next one. Um, but I developed a real appreciation for the Cincinnati Reds. Like uh, They were the team that I followed through the middle, late 70s. Oh, okay. And, yeah, the big, big red machine era, Johnny Bench, Pete Rose, Joe Morgan. Uh, and you got and to, you got to go to games? No. Oh, okay. I, I'd only been to I only got to go to a couple of games when I was a kid. Um, we moved to Washington D.C. the year the Washington Senators left to become the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. So, as a kind of a thank you to the fans, there was a uh, there was an exhibition game uh, between the Senators and. Now I'm drawing a blank. I can't remember who it was that they played, you but were... it wasn't even a. It wasn't even a. It was a. It wasn't even a, a legit game. Okay. It was just like a farewell game. They had like a home run derby. Frank Howard hit a bunch of dingers. Yada yada. Hmm. Um, I can't remember who. I can't remember who. Who the other team was. Um, how, how old were you? God, I must have been. I couldn't have been. 
Couldn't have been eight years old. Oh, maybe. wow. Okay. Yeah, well, that's fine. Yeah. You, you don't have to dwell. It's fine that you can't remember the other team when you were eight years old. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but so that that's a game you got to see, though. Oh, it was the uh, it was the it was the Red Sox. It was Red Sox Senators, and I remember because there was a home run derby between Carl Yastrzemski and Frank Howard. I think hmm. that's what I want to say. Okay. Yeah. So that that's when it crystallized for you that this was something. This was a, a sport you were into. Uh, no. A year or two later, I sort of got into baseball and started following the Cincinnati Reds. And I, I was a catcher, and I kind of idolized Johnny Bench and oh, okay. yeah, that sort of stuff. Okay. And, and it's, just a, it's just a love affair. Like you haven't, it, it, it hasn't diminished for you in any way. There's something Well, to... I, I'll, I kind of fell out of, like, when I got to be a teenager, I stopped paying attention to baseball and uh, got more into music and punk rock specifically. And then I kind of rekindled an interest in baseball and the... Early nineties, yeah, yeah. And, and any other sports? Like, are you into hockey or basketball? No, I understand. I I have friends who are really into hockey, and I and uh, I I understand their enthusiasm for it because it is like a a true team sport, and it's very fast and very exciting, and mm-hmm. I and it involves some mock and some real violence. I understand. I appreciate people's <laughs> enthusiasm for it, but I'm not. I I could care less. It, it, does the scale of baseball appeal to you? It is. It is arguably one of the slowest, longest major I sports. I just like. I, I mean, it's a unique game. You know, uh, all the other teams. All the other team sports are basically the same. Like you have two teams moving a thing, trying to get it in a goal, and then when the time runs out, whoever is ahead wins. Right. Like it's a, they're fucking stupid games. <laughs> all those games are fucking ridiculous. You know, <laughs> basketball, hockey, football, soccer. I mean, they're all the same. They're all the same fucking game, and I. And none of them mean a shit to me, you right, know. Right. Um, so I, I could give a shit about any of those games. They're all the same, and I and I don't I don't appreciate the subtleties because the monotony of the exercise is just dulling to me. Right. Okay. I think I find baseball much more interesting. The the uh, you know the, just the the structural differences. The fact that the ball doesn't do the scoring, people do the scoring. And that the defensive team is in control of the ball and not the offensive team, and that um, you, there there's no no preordained time limit on the game. You just you play the game until it's resolved. You know. Yeah. That you know it's like it's like any other truly amazing game in that it doesn't have these external constraints on it that uh, that make certain aspects of it ridiculous. Like in a you know. If there's only one at bat left, a team that's behind nine to nothing could still win the game. You know, it's, yeah. if there's only one out left in the game, the team that's behind nine to nothing could still win. If there's only one minute left to play and you've got one team down three touchdowns and a field goal, it's uh, it, that last chunk of the game is meaningless. You know, uh, uh, so I I just don't. I don't like the idea of having uh, like a boundary on the game that makes some of the action meaningless. Yeah, no, it's totally. I knew there would be an interesting answer to this, and uh, that's totally fascinating. I never even, I never thought of it that way. I kind of, and also like the variety of physical skills that are necessary to play baseball. Uh, like, sure, there are different things needed if you're a. a point guard or a forward or a center or whatever in basketball you have but the the core skills for all those things are basically the same like 
shooting, ball handling, passing, like that's all the same thing. Right. But the difference between a catcher and a shortstop and a center fielder and a pitcher, like the difference between those position players is is dramatic. It's to the extent, like you take a, a decent general basketball player, you could put him anywhere on the court and he, and he could get by in a pickup game, right? Right. But if you take a, you know, take a catcher and put him on the pitcher's mound, he would just embarrass himself in almost any at almost any level of the sport. You know, some would argue that a goalie in hockey, compared to a you know any other player on the ice, might have that same distinction. Okay, so you got that one thing going for you there. <laughs> there is an incident in the in the Toronto Maple Leafs history. There was a player named Francis King Clancy. And there, back in the day, if you had too many penalties, it wasn't like some weird bartering system. Like if you got a penalty, you were just off the ice. And if the, so when the goalie got a penalty, nowadays, well, the goalie got a penalty, so hey, you, hey, you, the forward, you go off and serve the penalty. Back in the day, huh. the goalie would have to go off. Okay. So King. Well, Cl- I mean, I mean, just to tell you how important goalies are, like teams in a in a that are behind late in the game, they routinely pull their goalie. So they get an, an extra <laughs> offensive player. Like, okay, uncle, we'll just leave the net open then, you know. All right, baseball wins. I tend to agree with you, except there are, there's, you know, there are people who find it to be a bit of a lumbering, you know, it requires a bit more patience. I, I argue that in a okay, s- split sure, second, whatever. in a split if second. If you're not into it, you're not into it. I mean, I would never, yeah. I would never say if you hate baseball, you should endure it, you know. No, no. Because it does take a long time to resolve the game. And if you're not into baseball, you're not going to enjoy the three hours that you have to watch it, right. right? Yeah, yeah. But if you're into baseball, then all the little stuff is really cool, like watching the way the, the battery works, like the way the pitcher and the catcher interact and the way the, you know, the defensive, whoever is responsible for the defense, whether it's the catcher or uh, somebody in the dugout, the way they reposition the defensive players for each hitter that comes up, you know, like I, all that stuff is totally fascinating to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I see where you're coming from. Now, the other sport, the other thing that you're interested in that I'm fascinated by is poker. I have no idea how to play poker. I've tried to play it a few times, but poker has been an interest of yours for quite a long time, right? Yeah, I mean, I've played since I was a kid, and I'm sure that I will play it the rest of my life. I mean, and you've been featured lately. Like, you keep popping up in these World Series of Poker videos. Like, people are talking to you about Yeah, well, things. I mean, that's... I mean, I don't think that's necessarily because I'm, I'm, like, a remarkable poker player. I think that's just the novelty of noticing that there's some cue list somebody in the... <laughs> in the in the, in the, oh, here, we can talk to this guy. He was... His name is on the back of some records. Yeah, like, you know, like I'm sure if there was like a you know a a, a a moderately successful race car driver or um, you know a a guy in the lower ranks of the pro golf tournament scene or whatever, like if there you know like if there's any other anybody of note there, they're gonna you know there's a, they have time to fill, so they're gonna you know drag him out of his seat and talk to him. I'm are sure. are there people like that? Are there like you know? sort of semi-celebrities, pseudo-celebrities, as I believe you're describing them? Or, or do other people like that show up? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, people from all walks of life play cards. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, there, there are people significantly more famous than me that are avid card players as well, like Gabe Kaplan, yeah. for example. He played in a million-dollar buy-in tournament this year. He played in the one-drop tournament, 
meaning he had to pony up a million dollars in order to play. Hmm. And I don't think he cashed, meaning that I think that he set fire to a million dollars. Really? Know? Huh. Yeah. So, I don't know if it was his money or if he was being put in the game by somebody or if he sold action or whatever. But, you know, I, I, wasn't, I didn't actually follow that tournament that closely, so I don't know if he cashed or not, but I don't think he did. So, what so is, that means that he played for a couple of days and burned up a million dollars. Wow. That's... I mean that seems incomprehensible to me because that's just yeah. a lot of money. But what is it about poker that uh, you, that appeals to you exactly? I find it an immensely challenging and rewarding game. You know, it's uh, it is in popular perception, poker is seen as this uh, sort of very tense sort of war of of bluffing and courage and all that sort of stuff. It's actually the most of the time it's relatively simple math and situational comprehension of what's happening. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, I still find it I find it tremendously engaging. Especially I pl- I play primarily mixed games, meaning I'm not playing just Texas Hold'em or just Omaha or whatever. Mm-hmm. The game the game that I play in as a regular game is rotation where we play sometimes 12, 14 different games. Um, and some of them are very odd games. Like there's uh, Badusi is probably the oddest of those games. It's a draw poker game where you can draw three times and the best lowball hand splits the pot with the best Badugi. And a Badugi is a four-card hand of different suits. Uh, and the, the best Badugi is the one with the lowest cards in it. Huh. So, uh Badugi, I've not I didn't know that was a thing. A Badugi. Badugi is a form of poker and Badusi is a version of low ball where you're playing you're splitting the pot between the best deuce to 7 low ball hand, i.e. the worst straight poker hand and the best Badugi, i.e. the lowest Badugi and a Badugi being a, a hand of four of different cards, different card ranks and different card suits. So that's a very strange game uh, in that if you you have to understand the the hand rankings, you have to understand the concept of each half of that game, and you have to make correct drawing decisions relative to each half of the pot for that game. It's a, it's a structurally un, it's similar to other triple draw games, and that's a whole family of games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the subtleties of it being deuce to seven rather than ace to five low ball and things and things of that nature come into play when you're trying to make a badugi sometimes you're in a drawing situation where you can either draw to a strong low ball hand or you can draw to a badugi but you can't do both uh and and so you have to evaluate your opponents based on your experience with them like what what kind of hands they tend to play what kind of draws they tend to make things like that so uh, that that is a whole those are layers of complexity that don't exist in other single winner games or other kinds of poker. But that's just one of, you know, 9, 10, 12, 14 games that we might play in a given evening. Wow. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that as a, as a practice of, you know, just learning the different games, learning how to play the different games against the different opponents, learning how to play what is theoretically correct play for all those different games, and then what is situationally correct given what's happened so far. So you, the, you, you enter these sort of high-level... They're, they're, they're high-level tournaments, I assume. Like, do you do... You must do okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a lifetime winner, both in tournaments and in cash games. But that's not that's not. Uh, I mean, it is it w- it is, would have been possible for a very good poker player to play as many tournaments as I have played and not have shown a profit yet, because I don't play that many tournaments. I only play a half a dozen a year hmm. uh, at the World Series, and I, I literally don't play tournaments otherwise. I just play in cash games. Um, now it would be almost impossible for a good player to play cash games with the frequency that I play them and not show a profit. Uh, but it is possible, given the variance inherent in tournament poker, for a very good player to play the number of tournaments that I've played and not show a profit. So that's it. the fact that I have turned a profit is uh, the, the fact that I'm profitable as a as a tournament player is not necessarily indicative of me being good at it. Uh, what I'm saying is that the uh, the long term takes a long time to reveal itself, and I might have just gotten lucky those times that I've cashed in tournaments. Okay. Now, from from an external perspective, people assume that poker it is, obviously involves a certain amount of strategies, and you know when you think talk about things like bluffing and whatnot, mm-hmm. some people assume would assume it requires a, a little bit of acting, and I'm I'm curious if that's do you do you find that do you are you, are you pretending are you acting to, to sort of you know psych well, people out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't qualify it as acting. There, there are. If you're studying what you're talking about, are tells meaning yeah. behaviors or characteristics that someone gives off that give you information about his play, right? Whether he's bluffing, whether he's got a value hand, yeah. Whether he's strong in this situation or whether he's, you know, drawing or whatever. And tells can be simple autonomic things like somebody's breathing gets very shallow and very rapid or somebody's pulse quickens and you can see their pulse you can see the veins in their throat and their arms swell up or you can see the the pulse in a man's neck or you can see his chest heaving with heavy breathing that sort of thing hmm. like those those things are autonomic you, you you can't fake those and those have meaning but you can't necessarily interpret that meaning immediately most of the time if somebody's pulse has quickened and he's made a big wager, then that means that he's excited, right? He's excited because his he's made a big wager with a positive expectation, meaning he has a strong hand, right? You're there saying, are some people who are excited by the prospect of making a big bluff. Right. So they could do this exact same thing. Their pulse would quicken. You'd see the, big, the vein bulging in their neck. And it could just mean that they sense that this is a really good bluffing opportunity, and they're very excited by that. So that's you, you have to be able to interpret that again contextually. But but uh, all of that stuff is I, I wouldn't call it acting. I mean, a, any good poker player is aware of his physical demeanor and aware of his behavior. And most poker players that are winners are trying to control their demeanor, or trying to control their behavior so that it's inscrutable. Right. Like you, you there are there are techniques that you can use and there are ways that you can prevent your opponents from discerning what you're doing. The easiest way to do it is to just be mechanical about every action that's significant. Like whenever you're putting a bet in the pot, do it mechanically the same way. Mm. Don't mm. don't fling your chips in when you're bluffing. Don't place them in quietly when you're value betting. Try to do things mechanically. Or or when you say 
if you're going to say raise or call or fold or whatever whatever you're saying, you try to say it the same way as though you're making a recitation rather than saying raise it up or one time and then say saying I raise another time. Like try. Huh. You, you try to do things in a sort of a mechanical fashion. So if you're controlling yourself well, that is, if you're playing well, you're going to be a pretty boring person at the table. <laughs> right, because it's a lot of, yeah, what you're saying is that makes a lot of sense. It's behavioral interpretation as opposed to, you see... Now, there are players who go who have rather elaborate pantomimes that they go through to try to make you do one thing or another. There are things that they say, there are things that they do, there's yeah. like a, a, a manner of speech, you know, and they, either through experience or through expectation, they, they think that that will get them a, a result. And if you're a decent poker player, you can usually pick things, pick those things out and uh, and disappoint the person that's making those sort of acted tells. Those are called acted tells, when someone is behaving in a certain way, trying to trying to fool you. Now, there are acted tells which are the inverse of an autonomic tell. Like um, Mike Caro is a poker writer who's been on the scene for a very long time, and he wrote a book uh, called The Book of Tells, which was basically about his his understanding of the way people behave when they're playing cards. And the simplest rule of thumb is that when someone is acting strong in in a poker hand... They are typically weak. And when they're acting weak. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They are typically strong, meaning that they're in, in an effort to deceive their opponents, they are behaving in a manner that's diametrically opposite to what the strength of their hand would indicate, right? Yeah. Um, and that is, such a re- that is such a reliable thing in casual games that if you see somebody sigh and look dejected and then put a bet in the pot, you can assume that he's got a quite strong hand and you adjust your play accordingly. Reverse, you know? reverse psychology kind of thing. Yeah, um, that is the first level, right? Um, Players who are marginally more sophisticated than that will act still. They will still put on an act, but their act will incorporate elements of one of these cliches when, in fact, they are indicating something opposite to what the traditional interpretation would be. The classic example of that was the guy Jamie Gold, 
who won the main event at the World Series of Poker a few years ago, not a particularly good poker player. He ran really well, but his skill in that tournament was in getting his opponents to do what he wanted by being completely honest about the strength of his hand. <laughs> like when he had a really weak hand and someone, and he made a bet at somebody, uh, and they would say, do you want me to call? And he would say, no, I don't want you to call. My hand isn't very good. Please don't call. And then they would not call because they would assume that that was, that he was operating on the first level where he was feigning weakness with a very strong hand. Huh. Or he would he would say something, he would make a bet, and the guy would say, I wonder if I should call here. And he would look at the guy and he would say, you know, uh, you can call if you don't like money. My hand's really great, or something like that. And he would indicate the strength of his hand quite honestly, and people would misinterpret it through their training to disregard such things or to like infer the inverse of such things. And it worked fine for the duration of the World Series of Poker for that one tournament when he was basically an unknown player. It worked fine. But in the ensuing years, he basically went broke doing that exact same thing because people <laughs> had it figured out. You know? Okay, so this whole world of fakery and intrigue... I mean, It's th- grossly overplayed. In the, in the popular perception of poker, that sort of stuff seems really super-duper important. In the day-to-day, you know, in the grinding world of playing poker for money... Uh, most of your decisions are going to be made deductively based on the situation, and they're not going to be based on whether or not the guy like took an Oreo apart uh, as a tell about whether his hand was strong or not. Yeah. Uh, to, to use a cliche that was in the film Rounders about poker players. Okay. All right. So you're aware of the kind of the perception of, of poker in pop culture, but it doesn't really impact real poker players they're just doing their thing and no yeah i mean a very good friend of mine had a terrific run at the world series this year a guy named brandon shack harris the guy i've been playing cards with for you know almost 10 years now he's been a terrific player for a very long time uh but this summer he had a phenomenal run at the world series of poker he won the one of the first events he entered he made he came second in two other events and he uh came third in another event and he had another couple of miscellaneous caches. He is at, at the moment. He is in in front. Uh, he's he's leading in the player of the year standings at, at the World Series of Poker. Wow. And uh, and he's essentially the same caliber of poker player that he was a year ago when he played a similar slate of tournaments and and bricked the whole thing. He didn't win a nickel, hmm. right? So. The, that gives you an idea how very how 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 much there there is a, a variability in the results of poker playing, despite the fact that he's the same guy playing the same games against the same competition from one year to the next. Right. One year, if you were just going by results, he would look like a chump. The next year, he's the player of the year. You know. Yeah. Okay. And it's so it's kind of similar to baseball in that sense. Uh, you know, something can happen in an instant. It's a long season. I mean, yeah. it's a long season. It's a long process, but something can just happen, and it's sort of inexplicable, and it just alters the whole course of the the, the field, if you will. Yeah, I mean, the thing about baseball is that it's a gradual accumulation of very small advantages over the course of a very long season. You know, mm-hmm. like if there if there's a a fractional difference between two players. 
in a situation and that situation comes up a hundred times and you're and you're playing the wrong guy in every one of those situations as a manager yeah then you're you're costing your team wins right yeah. and in in poker it's the same way if there's a situation that comes up that you misplay consistently and that situation comes up a hundred times a year you're costing yourself money yeah that's interesting. See, I just didn't. I just don't know that much about this realm. So between high times and baseball and poker, now I've learned quite a lot. I appreciate this. <laughs> uh, I thought of you when Tommy Ramone passed away. Um, everyone's been reappreciating yeah. the Ramones um, lately. I, that, that's how I feel. That's what I feel I'm doing with with this uh, situation. What impact did that band have on you? I know it was significant. Yeah, they were an enormous inf- inspiration and influence on me. Like I. I'd, didn't really take music seriously until I heard the Ramones sort of by chance. And after that, like punk rock and music were the most important things in my life. And I'm quite comfortable saying that nothing that I've done in my life, I would have done had I not heard the Ramones. Wow. Wow. And do you feel like, again, this is an external perception. I think what I kind of wrote about this, my feelings right now are that, I'm not sure that people looked past the cartoon that the Ramones represented to the records enough. I mean, I think a lot well, of a lot of I us think did. any any legitimate like any Ramones fan did, you know, like yeah. their their popular perception is that they were like a punk band and but among people who were really into that band, like the those first three or four albums are sort of, you know, mile markers in your life when those records were around you played them non-stop and you and you kind of lived that way yeah you know? yeah did any of the the british punk of that time appeal to you yeah i mean i liked it all uh, but you know some of it has worn really thin like i i can't hear the clash now without laughing um but the you know that sex pistols album is amazing and the first couple of damned records are pretty good and yeah you know, and then a lot of the I actually sort of like the the late seventies post punk sort of noisy freak out music a little bit more than I liked the sort of class of seventy six era sort of punk stuff. Well, yeah. What what is it about the Clash that makes you laugh? Uh, it just all of it seems like a con to me. It, all, it also seems affected and phony, and hmm. you know, very little of it seems genuine. I, I mean, it's all the singing is all super melodramatic, and then you know, after the first couple of records, they started just really aggressively uh, bolting on affected affected influences from other musical idioms and like sort of like okay well here's the reggae part and yeah you know here's the blues part and you know i don't know i just i wasn't i wasn't into that at the time and now i i yeah now it strikes me as as very phony <laughs> the sex pistols obviously didn't have a chance to get bad per se they <laughs> yeah I, and their one album is an amazing album yeah yeah and 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 uh, i thought of when I think of the Sex Pistols these days, I often think of this performance that you would, uh, your band did with David Yao. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you you got dressed up as the the Sex Pistols for Halloween, and the Jesus Lizard book just came out, and you wrote an essay for it. Uh, have you actually read the whole book? Uh, they sent me a PDF of the book, and I read through a lot of it. That was there's a lot of it in there, and um, 
it was really great reading all, all the reminiscences from everybody. Like, you know, I was at a lot of the events that are described and I saw a lot of the, and I know a lot of the people in that book intimately. So yeah, it was pretty great. Now, I had all of the members of the band on, on this show and we we talked about the book extensively. And one thing I did pick up on was your relationship with David William Sims still seems to, uh, at least for him, it seems to be a, a point, it, it seems pointed, I suppose. Um, yeah. I, I mean, we we don't have a we're not intimate friends or anything. We have some common history, so that the I mean that's always going to be there. But uh, and I, you know, I respect him and I admire him, but we're not bosom buddies or whatever. Yeah, he does seem to like tie. I I some I some I know that they had a rough period uh, when they when they left Touch and Go and went to a, a major label and. I did find a couple of instances in the book where he seemed to be discounting that previous period to to kind of prop up the. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to talk to him about that. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really know what goes. I, I don't know what was going through his head. I mean, I mean, I know how I interacted with the band and how uh, they treated me, and I always felt like we, everybody was honorable to me, and I don't feel like I, I don't feel like anybody was deceptive or duplicitous or yeah. whatever. I, yeah. I, I didn't. I mean, we disagreed about how to do things, and that's the only, you know, that's what it boils down to. Okay. Now, but you and David Yao seem like kindred spirits. Is that is that fair? We were great friends when David lived in Chicago, and we spent a lot of time together, and, uh, you know, those kind, of, those kind of bonds don't break that easy, you know? It's like anybody that you've had formative experiences with, you're always going to have a soft spot for them. Yeah. Now, he just published an art book about cats, and uh-huh. uh, and and you're a cat guy. I like cats a lot. Uh, what what is it about cats? You, you you enjoy cats tremendously, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always had cats as pets, and I've always liked them. I I guess I feel like there's something sort of something about a cat's demeanor where you feel like you have to earn the respect of a cat. Like a cat doesn't just like you because you know you have to you you have to you have to have a, a if you get along with a cat, it's because your personalities sync up in some way, as opposed to it just being like a dog just seems to like the fact that there's a person in the room. Yeah, know? yeah. I love my my cat's name is Gary, and I, I love him very much. And uh, I taught him to sit on command, which uh, is an unusual dog thing. But yeah, I can't explain it either. They're just, uh, I can't imagine my life without the little guy, you know? He's, he's just a good guy. And I know you've had, uh, you, you, I mean, your studio, there's cats in the studio, aren't there? Uh, we, when I lived in the building with the studio, we had our cat, house cats were here. They are no longer cats in the studio. The cats live with us at our house since we moved out. Okay. So there are no longer cats in the studio. Okay. No, I, I was just curious about the cats. Now, it's the 20th, the 20th anniversary of Ad Action Park was earlier this year, the first shellac mm-hmm. album, right? Um, can we talk a little bit about what that, what making that first record was like? Uh, have you had a chance to sort of reflect upon that? Uh, sure. What do you want to know? Well, I mean, this was your first album after releasing a few singles. Um, mm-hmm. What was the the band dynamic like at that point? Um, we were still sort of getting our sea legs. Like we had done some touring, but not a lot. Um, I wanted to kind of take it slow with shellac. I didn't want to be like really aggressive about putting records out immediately. And uh, I thought it was important that as a band, we get our shit together and make sure that we were comfortable with each other and make sure that we all had like a 
a, a common mindset about everything before we worked to aggressively to try to get the band out into the public. And I felt like we worked at a very comfortable pace. We didn't rush anything. We did several sessions. We did a session at Black Box. We did a session at Southern Studios in London. We did a session at my place in Chicago. Um, at the time, I was still I still had a studio in a house on uh, a, a bungalow. And it was before we built electrical audio. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we we took our time. We got it done. We were content with it, and then that was that. Now, you recently began to, re- like you've been remastering some of your, your personal back catalog. Like the big black records sort of came out again quietly. Uh-huh. Have you thought about, uh, is the same sort of treatment being given to shellac records? Uh, you know, we're not, we're not unsatisfied with them as they are, so I'm happy to just keep them in, in production everything's, so that people can buy them. Everything's you know? fine with those ones. Yeah, I mean, they've stayed in print. The singles have fallen out of print periodically as we've gotten lazy about making jackets for them. Um, but if we got off our ass and made some more jackets, we could have more singles basically anytime we wanted. Now, now, in terms of singles, now this was the thing. Like Shellac used to pretty regularly, as regularly as Shellac does anything, release singles. And there, haven't, there hasn't been a single in a few years. Is that for any particular reason? I think we are... We haven't done singles because we haven't been as productive in terms of songwriting. It's just that simple. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think we used to we used to get together to play and write more often, and now it's because our lives are more complicated with work and family and stuff. We don't get together as often, so we're not we're not as productive. Okay, so I mean, the new record. I think when you and I spoke last, no, the new record has nine songs. I think you were debating at the time whether it would have eight or nine songs. This is everything that you'd prepared for the album is on Dude Incredible, right? Yeah. Right, okay. Now, the singles, some of the singles, and the releases like The Futurist are, are on sale. People sell them for a lot of money. Uh, huh. <laughs> they sell, do, are you aware of this? Uh, no. I mean, I people. there's somebody who'll try to get a lot of money for anything, you know? Yeah. So well, it would, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, if you go to like a site like I'll just like discogs.com, someone okay. periodically I will go on there and just I'll type in something and and the futurist is always like $700. You know, certain singles, the more rare singles are uh, you know $150 or whatever it is. And yeah, I, nobody's I, buying them. That's no nobody's spending that kind of money on one of those I records. I think I think they are, Steve. I think they are right. because they come whatever. and go. Yeah, it's weird. It's unfortunate. But my question I suppose is have you ever come close to compiling the old singles in, into some kind of, uh, you know, record or something? We've talked about it. We've talked about, there's a, there are a couple of Peel sessions and then, and there are some, the old singles and stuff. We've talked about assembling all that together into a compilation album. Um, I honestly don't remember what our decision was about whether we should do that or not. Um, on one hand, I'm not into the idea of repackaging material that's already available. Right. On the other hand, I'm not into going through the effort of making more covers for the singles, <laughs> uh, which is what it boils down to. Like, uh, so it's a, it, you know, it's 
I don't think I, I don't know that we've resolved it. I think we've talked about it. And I think we even have conceptually gotten our head around the idea of making a compilation of those early oddball recordings and the oh okay I and mean, the peel sessions, but uh, we haven't committed to doing it yet. Okay, so. that's interesting. I say I just I just didn't know if it was. I half expected you to say like, well, you know, they came and they went, and we're not that interested in the past or whatever. But it, it is something that you've contemplated. That's that's interesting to me. Now, Dude Incredible is out soon, and uh, I'm at a slight disadvantage uh, than I am normally in that I, I haven't heard the record yet. Um, uh, I ordered it, and it's coming, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you about some of the songs, uh, and I thought maybe one way to do it is to go through the track listing and maybe just ask you for a one-word encapsulation of the song and maybe a slight sure. slight elaboration. So if we go with Dude Incredible, what can what's one word that encapsulates the song for you? Uh, one word, really? Well, okay. I don't know. Uh, I, well, I, I'm just... I mean, I'll, 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 I'm going to stick with one word because that's what you said. <laughs> I'm going to say... Um, hmm, I'm going to say... Monkeys. Monkeys. Okay, now monkeys are a motif on the album cover for one thing, and I wanted to... Yeah. I should have a note here that just says monkeys, but I neglected to write it down. Monkeys. What? Why does this song remind you of monkeys? Well, the song. I mean, it's basically about. I mean, it's the song is is sort of a straightforward telling of a, a a group of monkeys deciding to go on a raid and then adventure that they have along the way and eventually finding the females that they were in search of. Like that's what the song is about. Oh, okay. In a, in a literal sense, um, but it's sort of generally about motivating a group of people to do something that some people are that that some people in the group are into doing and some are not into doing but you need everybody's participation and then and also how things can happen you know when you're in the midst of tr- trying to to do one thing you end up having to do something else and you know out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you're in this big fight, you know, and then <laughs> then, uh, then, you get on with business after the fight is over and that sort of thing. It's about, like, the group dynamics of trying to get a, get a bunch of, get something done with a group of people, you know. Okay. Somebody ends up sort of having to, to behave like a, a, a ringleader, and then there's, you know, debate, and all the counties have to be heard from, and then... Eventually, there's like a move, and you, every, you everybody's suitably motivated, and you go off and do something. And then, but along the way, things happen, and then you're in circumstances, and you have to deal with the circumstances. And then, there's, ultimately, you get to a resolution where you conclude your enterprise or whatever. Right, and you presume that monkeys must go through this same situation. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's obvious they do. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now the next song is compliant. Okay, uh, one word. I'm going to say... Compulsive. Compulsive, all right. Yeah, the the song, the text of the song is uh, an abstraction that Bob came up with of the things that someone who is suffering obsessive-compulsive disorder has to do just to get through his day, he has to 
make sure that certain things, certain rituals are performed or certain certain things are done in a, in a certain way in order for to satisfy his obsession. Hmm. Um, and it it's called compliant because that's a shorthand for OCD compliant. Like if you have to check the handle of your door four times to make sure it's suitably locked and that you won't be uh, attacked by marauding robbers or whatever, then you, the fourth one makes it OCD compliant. If you only checked it three times, you might still have some lingering doubts, you know. Huh. Okay. Um, or, uh, you know, if you watch the routines that some major league hitters go through when they come to the plate, like they'll they'll have a, a whole series of pre-programmed gestures that they'll go through and little they have to check all the parts of their wardrobe and um, readjust their batting gloves and adjust the grip on the bat a few times, that sort of thing. Right. All right. And, I, can, I can see why that would be fodder for, for an interesting song. Yeah. I mean, basically it's like um, little things that could, in, it could derail your whole day if you don't do them because you're suffering from this disorder that requires you to do these things, not because they're actually problematic of themselves, but because, you know, your psyche has made them problematic. Right. All right. That's, that's a good answer. Now, the, this has become a contest. I'm sorry. I gave you the one-word stipulation, and now I feel like it's a game show. I, I apologize. But still, this is insightful. The next song is You Came In Me. Uh, intercourse. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly straightforward song about sexual intercourse. Is it a romantic notion? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's probably more cold-blooded than that. You Came In Me sounds almost accusatory. Yeah, in the context of the song, I think that's the way it works. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, again, just so the, the audience at home recognizes, I have not heard a song. I mean, I've probably, seen, <laughs> I've probably seen some of these live. This is not stage, is my point. I'm just, okay, sure. this is good. Uh, riding bikes. I've been doing a lot of bike riding lately, so this is uh, appealing to me. Riding bikes. Yeah, I mean, that riding bikes is in the context of... Uh, children or adolescents riding bikes where riding bikes is actually like a, a um a mindset and a, and an activity all put together like you and your friends go riding bikes that implies a, very, a certain degree of intimacy or closeness with your group of friends and uh that activity is not just you're not just riding bikes you're having adventures you're going places you're breaking things you're stealing things you're causing you know causing minor vandalism and um all that sort of stuff now, Steve, I'm being told by the judges that that is the incorrect answer. Uh, you, oh, I was supposed to give you a, a one word, wasn't that, I? That's correct, yes. Shit. All right, let me work on the word then. Let me Give me a second here. Yes, take all, take all the time you, have, you, you, you um, need. I'm going to say vandalism. Vandalism. Okay, yeah. and you think that encapsulates... You mentioned... Okay, that's fair. So we'll listen for the tells about vandalism, I guess. Now, well, I mean, that's the, tri- that's the childhood or adolescent. The, the song itself is actually about a relationship that was spawned from two young people who rode bi- riding bikes together as kids and them forming a bond, and then later in life that bond is broken by circumstances, and one of the two guys in the, in the relationship uh, is trying to bring somebody else, bring the other guy up to speed. And he says, 
we're not riding bikes, in, in implying that this situation is more serious and or our camaraderie is meaningless and or, uh, you know, this is not a, a childish endeavor. Okay. Well, that sounds that sounds intriguing as well. Now, the word surveyor pops up quite a bit. Uh, it starts with this uh, fifth song, All the Surveyors. Yeah. Uh, well, we first got into a sort of a surveyor kick when uh, Bob, or I can't remember if it was Bob or me, first noticed that um, quite a few of the founding fathers um, of our country, the United States of America, your neighbor to the south, mm-hmm. uh were in fact surveyors, meaning that they took a chain and a pole and paced off the the physical dimensions of our new country. Um, so they physically measured our our this the the place where they were living, and that was part of their definition of what where they were living and that part of their, you know, that there had to be a lot of experiences while you're stomping through the swamp with your chain and your sextant or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, literally physically measuring a place, like how much more could the borders of that place mean to you and and its identity as a nation than that you had physically measured it, you know? Uh, So there's a lot of, a lot of the founding fathers were in fact surveyors, including George Washington. Right. Um, and then, but there's, there's an, another, like if you just think of the word survey, I mean, the, that means that you're sort of assessing something from, from a distance and measuring it, and, right? Right. And then there are, there are a lot of circumstances, a lot of things that happen where there's an external observer surveying what's going on. And... It doesn't even necessarily have to be a person these days. It could be, you know, a satellite or a, or a, a drone or mm. a surveillance camera or whatever. You know, the surveillance camera surveying. Right. Ta-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so the one word for that song, you thought it was going to blow it again and not give you a word. <laughs> it's going to dock more points. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to say the word is survey. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's great. I appreciate that. Number six, right. the people's microphone. Okay, that's an instrumental song, and um, it uh, the the subject matter of the song doesn't really exist because it's a musical motif only. But um, it was named after the practice that was revived during the um, occupation movement. The Occupy Wall Street uh, and Occupy Other Places oh, movement. Oh, right. I remember Where um, when someone wanted to address uh, the, the, the whole of the occupation, obviously it couldn't be, over, couldn't be heard over a large distance. So uh, the, the whole assembly sort of made a social contract that whatever this person said from the podium, they would all repeat in sync, in a loud voice, so that people behind them could hear it, oh, right? Right. So, and that that um, construction was called the people's microphone. Like, somebody would say something, and then the whole group would repeat it for everybody else to hear. And 
I think that that was an ingenious solution to a problem that might have otherwise had a technological solution. I think that was an ingenious invention. Um, and I started to think also about the the its use as a kind of a, a motivator, motivating tool or a kind of a, a consensus building tool. Like if you hear yourself saying something in your own voice, it forces you to consider the veracity of the thing that you're saying because you don't want to be repeating a lie in a loud voice. You don't want to be like deceptive right. toward people in a loud voice, right? So everyone who's convinced themselves to be a conduit in that situation is by the process of repeating the thing that they are amplifying a kind of a filter for its veracity or its sincerity right you know right and then it forces them to internalize that thought because they have to evaluate it and it could be conceived of as a kind of a mechanical process like a rote thing but because of the way we all behave with respect to speech and language it isn't and I'm so I was, I was fascinated by that, and I I admire that as a technique to solve the problem of being heard in a crowd. And I'll be honest, I felt like I missed something by not participating in any of these people's microphone exchanges in the during the Occupy movement. I felt like I had missed out on an experience. Um, I have been to see. I don't know if you've seen the Evens. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah, there are moments in the Evens set where uh, Ian and Amy do things with their audience where they ask their audience to participate, either by murmuring or by snapping their fingers or by clucking their tongues or whatever, but where they're get, they get an entire room full of people to act as the sound system for this moment in their in their show. And I think that that's equally charming, you know? Yeah. And uh, I started to think about, you know, that as a as a group activity and as a as a as a as an artistic expression of using a group of people as your medium, and uh, then instantly because I'm uh, my mind works that way, I started to think of all the sinister um, ways that that could be, uh, you know, just comfortably converted into a propaganda tool, and how how it seems very simple and it seems very modest, but it, it it could actually be an incredibly potent and dangerous thing. And I feel like it's important to be aware of that duality of the, the fact that it that, you know, hooligan chants and stuff like that are not innocuous, you know, and chanted slogans and and group activity that that degenerates into mob activity it, are they're related, you know, and that the that, that what's being said by a group of people is not necessarily just sound, you know. Yeah, a lot of contextualization for an instrumental song. I don't believe we got the one word. Oh, fuck. It's frustrating, uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say... Altogether. Altogether, that's great. Huh? That's good. I mean, pretty good, huh? That's not bad. That's not yeah. not a bad one word. You 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 altogether. Very nice. Very nice. Which is also a synonym for being naked. Is it? Yeah. Altogether naked. 
It's a colloquial synonym for being in your all together. Oh, I didn't know that. I, 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 I always, always learning. That's what I. That's my slogan. Never mind. The next song is Gary. Now I, I will tell you that, as I established earlier, my cat's name is Gary. So I kind of want to believe the song might be about cats. But I also know there's Gary, Indiana. I'm curious. What is Gary? Go, go forth with Gary. Uh. Okay, the one word is going to be Indiana, <laughs> because uh, that song, Gary, is about the steel magnate for whom the town of Gary, Indiana, was named. Um, the lyrics for that song, or most of the lyrics for that song, are taken from a book of um, labor and communist folk songs um, that was given to me as a gift by Rob Vester, who used to work here at the studio. Hmm. Uh, it's called The Big Red Songbook, and it's a bunch of IWW songs and um, labor movement songs and farm worker songs and things like that. Uh, there's a song, the lyrics to which were written by a guy named T-Bone Slim, and they were in that book, and the song is called Gary, and it's a, about Gary, Indiana, and um, its namesake. Right now, I don't want to. I don't want to toot my own horn, own horn here. I don't. I don't even want to be able to say that properly. But it's odd to me that Gary could have meant anything, but I got it. I actually won that round. I figured out that it might be about Gary, Indiana. Huh? What does that okay. say? That, that just says that I'm on it. Yeah. <laughs> means you have your shit together. <laughs> well, come on. It's just a, it's a name. A lot of people think of it as, a, you know, a person's name. Gary, well, you know all the Garys. Anyway, that's... that's that's. Uh, so you're saying the text was from, what, public domain songs? Uh, I don't know that it's public domain. Oh. Close enough. <laughs> um, uh, we attributed it on the album. So oh, okay. Uh, the, okay. the text was from these T-Bone Slim lyrics, the, and then we added a, a verse and a chorus that didn't exist um, to, sort, to sort of make it contemporary. Um, and then the, the music is, uh, we came up with, kind of derived it from the cadence of the lyrics. Okay. I mean, the, the lyrics are all about the sort of position of an oligarch uh, or a captain of industry sort of subjugating an entire town, an entire population of people, and uh, expecting gratitude from people who he was controlling in every aspect. Right. Um, and then there's a little bit about how embarrassing Gary, Indiana is now. Uh, you know, how it's all basically bad smells and... and casinos. I, I got a really ugly speeding ticket coming back from seeing Shellac and Fugazi in Chicago in Gary, Indiana. And uh, I sent them the money for it and they said it wasn't American, but it was. Like it was a money order and it became this big brouhaha. And they said I was banned from driving in Gary, Indiana. So okay. I don't know. I'm just telling you. I, I have a weird association with that place too. So right. anyway, Mayor Surveyor. Um... Let's see. That's another instrumental. Let's see what's a good. I'm going to say that's a pun. That's the 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 word would be pun. Okay. Uh, and it's based on a just a little guitar motif. Uh, that 
we wanted to fit it into the record somewhere, and we had a, had had a conversation about how, like, going back to the founding fathers and the surveyors business, like to sort of qualify as a politician or as a as an as a statesman in the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the, this country's existence, you had to have a, a very tangible relationship with the country. Like you had to have physically measured it, basically, in order, you know. And now, basically, any asshole who wants to can be a politician. And and uh, I thought it would be like we sort of thought it would be nice to revive the idea that in in order to be, you know, in order to be a a public servant in politics, you would have had to have some relationship with the place that you were supposed to, that you were trying to govern. Like, you had to work in streets and sanitation, or you had to, you know. Oh, I see. It's like a job title. You are both the mayor and the surveyor of a town. Right. Like, it would be, I think it would be nice if that was, uh, if that was still a requirement. Like, if you, in order to, to be, uh, in government in a city, you would have to actually have to have some familiarity with it on an intimate sort of level in the same way that the surveyors were uh, when they were at the, in the colonial period, you know? Yeah. Cop slash, um, cop slash garbage man. Like you're, you're kind of, you've got to do a couple yeah. of things. Yeah. You, you should, you should be in the trenches in one way or another before you can presume to start bossing people around, you know? Right. Uh, so that, that was where that came from. Um, but it's also uh, it's also a pun, and I'll leave it to the listener to see if they can derive the pun. Okay, we'll so. we'll do that, and I'll I'll look forward to hearing it. Now, uh, finally, on the record, surveyor. Uh, yeah, that's um, a song, sort of literally about. Oh God, the word. Got to come up with one word. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say snappy. Snappy? Okay. Because that's a very snappy song. It's very it's it's a quick tempo, snappy peppy song. Uh and it has a uh it has a kind of a a more literal relationship with the founding fathers and their their work as surveyors in that I think the tools of the trade are mentioned by name and um there's a a quotation from uh, George Washington at the end that Bob recites where he where George Washington describes how the lack of maps impeded him his impeding progress and he had to resort to maps that he'd drawn up himself as a surveyor and things like that. You know, just because of this this recurring word and and now having talked to you about this, I mean, there seems to be and I'm not taking us down the the concept record idea, but there does seem to be a conceptual thread here. Uh, yeah, sure. So the record as a whole, hmm, I, anyway, I haven't even heard the record yet. I, I shouldn't be drawing. I'm just basing on what you've told told me now. I mean, that that's that's fascinating, because you don't, I don't know that the band traditionally does that, uh, have too many kind of through lines between songs. No, I think it's more a matter, of, I think it's more just kind of circumstantial. We had this, we were we were kind of caught in a conversational loop about the surveyor thing, uh, and then we had these songs that we were working on at the time, at the time, and they sort of ended up getting ended up getting banded together by that, without it being like an expressed thing. Expressed. Um, I mean, I suppose there's a tiny bit of continuity with the 
dude incredible and uh, other thing the the sense of adventure you know yeah uh but I'd, i it, i'm deriving that now after the ex post facto it's not it's not something that we talked about okay no that's fair now does this does this bring shellac up to speed is this every finished song that uh, you are capable of playing or are there more that weren't ready for this record uh well there we've worked on a couple of little bits since then but we have we we don't have any new like we don't have we don't have any additional new completely finished songs yet no okay steve thank you so much i appreciate all the time was this fun in any way sure yeah it's okay. always nice talking to you whatever i appreciate it all right well uh i don't have anything else you're not coming to canada anytime soon i presume nope not not that i know of oh no oh no no i lied i lied i am coming to canada twice now that i think about it oh this uh yeah i've got two autumnal trips to canada i'm gonna be at the pop montreal festival uh, I'm speaking, and then I'm going to do a little recording symposium type thing, a little demonstration recording chalk talk with Howard Beilerman of Hotel Two Tango. And he's also arranged uh, a public kitchen for me to do a little cooking demonstration. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so that's going to be kind of fun. Then uh, I'm also coming up to, I'm going to Winnipeg to make a, a record. Okay. Uh, Someone asked you to make a record in Winnipeg. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, good for you. Well, I mean, uh, I might be at Pop Montreal. Maybe we'll uh, we'll cross paths. And Howard right. Howard Billerman's a great guy. And you've you've been to that hotel to tango. You, uh, he told me that sure. you you kind of helped in some way. Uh, nah, not, you know, moral support more than anything else. Okay. You know, uh, I do appreciate your time. I want to tell folks that the new Shellac album, Dude Incredible, is out September sixteenth, twenty fourteen, via Touch and Go Records, and you can learn more about it at touchandgorecords.com. Well, alrighty then. <laughs> well, thanks for being on the show again. No problem. I was here anyway. <laughs> hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.